Well, this morning, we're, we're going to start the end of, of Isaiah. And we've been going through the book of Isaiah for almost a year now. And we are, we are drawing to the end. But it is a, it, it's an interesting end as he brings things back together and, and tries to tie in all these loose ends. He's been talking to a people that have walked away from God, a people that are struggling with idolatry, struggling with, do I worship God or do I worship self? And really, that's our struggle today, right? Do, do we worship God or do we worship self? And, and when we come to this last chapter, we saw it a little bit last week in 65 as well, we, we come to the question of what is God looking for? What pleases God? Now, now we're familiar with a question like this. A, a lot of you at work, and sometimes I, we, we talk and we have lunch and I hear the stories. Some of you at work are like, if I just knew what my boss wanted. If I just knew what they were looking for, I'd give it to them and, and we'd be good. But sometimes we don't communicate that well. Sometimes I hear from husbands and wives, man, if I just knew what my spouse needed, if I just heard from them. And so we're always looking for this, but think in terms of God, because spiritually, don't we sometimes come to the point of, tell me what God is looking for. What does God expect of me? And we have two different ways we can go with that. We can go with this whole set of rules and regulations and this checklist. God expects me to go to church 50 out of 52 weeks a year. And and God expects me to to work at Second Harvest. And, oh, great, now God expects me to take a baby bottle and and help um, Horizon. So we have this list, right? And the the danger with that, and, and all those things are great, don't get me wrong. The danger with that is we don't deal with the heart. And it becomes this checklist that, oh, if I do these things, I am spiritual. And if you've checked off less, well, I feel really good for one, and you're less spiritual. And so we come to, and and, and Isaiah, the Holy Spirit through Isaiah is going to call that false worship. And he's not saying those things are wrong, but he's saying God has a whole different idea of what, what he expects of us. And he expects a heart that is sold out to worship God. A heart that craves God and craves His Word. A heart that wants to bring glory to God and worship Him. Now, now here's the amazing thing. When our heart is right, those actions fall into place. And they're done for the right reasons. But when we focus on the actions and the actions alone, so many times the heart is all wrong. And, and, and it's sickening to God's stomach. And that's the summary of really where we're going to come to Isaiah 66. And today we may only get through the first six verses, but then we'll finish the rest. But we'll see how far we get. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 66. And this morning I've called it the end of the story, worship. So Isaiah 66, if you don't have a Bible, there's a black one underneath a chair right around you. I invite you to grab that, open up to Isaiah 66, a little over halfway through. And it's a chance that we have to, to look at the end of this marvelous book and this journey that we've been on, seeing God's heart for Israel and God's heart for His people. Isaiah 66. I'd like to start by reading the, the first two verses. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And in two verses, 
we see a grand overview of Isaiah. A grand overview of what God expects for us. And so point number one in your notes is, what is our Creator God looking for? Humble submission. What is our Creator God looking for? Humble submission. Thank you very much. I left that up my chair. (laughs) And if you look at these two verses, you see both of those concepts. And and if you remember back to our introduction of Isaiah, and at least two or three times as we've been going through it, we put yarn up here as a timeline and tried to, to place ourselves in the grand scheme of what God is doing. And we're just a little pinpoint, right? A little pinpoint. And Israel, who Isaiah is writing to, is just a little, little speck here. And, oh, life is so hard. But, but in the grand scheme of things, we saw Creator God that created this world and, and us as a people to be in relationship with Him. And then we saw sin mess it up. And then we saw at the center of it all the cross where God provides the solution. And in the last few weeks, we've seen the end of the story, right? The new heavens and the new earth, what we have to look forward to. And so he comes back here to the Creator God. Thus says the Lord, or Yahweh. When you see Lord in all caps like that, that's the personal covenant name of God. It's Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Think about that imagery. I think, think about... I mean, just picture that. We had the throne room scene in Isaiah 6 and this marvelous piece saying, the expanse of heaven, the expanse of space, the, the billions of galaxies that, that are, all have planets and all have universe. I mean, all of this, this expanse, this is my throne. This is how great God is. And it's bringing us back to his greatness. The earth, the earth that you think is so big, that's just my little footstool. You know, we, we, we have a, a, an ottoman at our couch at home, and I am amazed at the abuse that that ottoman gets. I don't know what it is, but boys, and this is my last week to use some of these illustrations, right? Because starting next week, my oldest is in with us. <laughs> boys have this thing that if they see something, they must jump on it. They must run across it. And it is so hilarious, at least I think it's funny, I don't know what my wife thinks. Every time they walk through the room, that is part of their path. And, 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 and so it's like, boing, boing, boing. And, and this thing takes so much, that's a footstool. It's, it's something you put your feet on. And God is saying, the earth, it's my footstool. It's my ottoman. And, and what we're seeing here is a picture of the greatness of the Creator God. And he goes on to say, what is the house that you would build for me? What is this place of my rest? And he's referring there to the temple. And just a little bit of history. If you remember, we we think that this last part of Isaiah was written to a people coming back from exile out of Babylon. The temple's been destroyed. And under Ezra, the people came back and they started to rebuild the temple. And, And so this is a perfect time for God to address what worship looks like. You're rebuilding the temple. You're going to start the sacrifices again. Is that enough? Is that what God is looking for? Or is he looking for something else? And so he he brings them to think beyond the temple. Think beyond this earth. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things in verse 2, my hand has made. And so all these things comes to be, declares the Lord. And so this, this first verse and a half brings us to think of the greatness of Creator God. This is the starting point of worship. 
This, if we're struggling to worship, we, we start by realizing God created all things. He made, he made you, He made me, He made everything we see. And so thus, He is the only one worthy of our worship. The only one. Anything else we worship is worshiping, worshiping the created instead of the Creator. And, and it's a, a poor, poor substitute. And so Isaiah starts his ending and starts his summary by saying, let's go back to who God is. Let's be blown away by the greatness of God. If you remember, we used these verses when we were going through the attributes of God and these verses specifically for the infinitude of God, that we can't comprehend Him. Earth cannot contain Him. And He has created all things. Stephen in Acts uses these verses to again Bring people back to why aren't you worshiping the Creator? He says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, and he's referring to Isaiah, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? So we ask, what is our Creator God looking for? Humble submission. I intentionally chose Creator God because that's where it starts recognizing who God is. And when we start to recognize who God is and get that right, then we start to understand who we are and our need for God and coming under His authority, which is the rest of verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. Some of your translations say, this is the one who I esteem. I actually like that a little better. Because think of, of God saying, I'll not only look at you, but if you want me to think highly of you, if you want me to esteem you, this is what you need to do. And we're, go- we're going to see these things in our, on our, our, um, in our breezeway. We've talked about the two greatest commands, love God, love others. And this comes under love God. The first step, how do we love God? And it comes back to a heart of worship. And he identifies three things. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Again, the context of verse 1 and and the rest of this chapter is the idea of worship. How do we come to worship? And we're to come with humble spirits, a humble heart, contrite in spirit and trembling at His Word. And these are worth spending a little bit of time on. And and, and I wanted to spend a little more time on this because we need to evaluate, is that us? And to, to know if that's us, we've got to understand what these words mean. And the first is humble. Humble. And humble is one of those things that we say all the time. And it's something that is, is a key to the Christian life. But what does it really mean to be humble? And some of the, the ways that that word is used is to put yourself under. To put yourself under someone else. To be poor or needy. I know the, the ladies talked about this at your women's retreat with the, the um, Beatitudes. But to be needy for God, to come under God... And, and so humility is saying, I am not God, I need Him, and I come under His authority. Keep in mind, that's why we started with Creator God. So that, that's sort of His qualifications. And now what is our response? We come under Him. We take a low place below God. We worship. The word for worship actually means to bow down, to fall on your face. And it's a sign of humility. So if we're to have a right spirit, a right heart as we come to God, it's a heart of worship. It's a heart of humility. How, how do we, again, this is one that we have a hard, we understand and we say it, but we have a hard time putting it into practice in everyday life. And some of the questions we can ask to sort of help us with this is, so 
So where in life do my desires win over God's desires? Where in life am I pursuing what I want instead of what God wants? Or maybe we don't even think instead of what God wants, where are we pursuing our own desires? How much energy am I putting into making life exactly what I want it to be? Having this perfect little world around me, which most of us know isn't going to happen. And so, so that, that's one way of thinking, how am I doing it? Humility. Uh, another way of thinking of it is the needy part of it. How, how are you at your independence? How are you at thinking you've got it all covered, you've got it all under control? And the lie that you've got it under control. Because that is a sign that we don't need God. That is a sign that, that we don't need anything. And so we try to control and we try, we try to manage those things. Sometimes with words it's helpful to see the opposite, to understand it. So the opposite of humility is pride. Good, you can wake up and answer. <laughs> it's pride. And, and again, that's one that, 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 that's like the favorite sin to confess because we can safely confess that in, in a group. But pride is saying, I have all things together. I'm better. I'm better than you. But when we're proud, we're also saying I'm better than God. I know what's best. I will do what I want. And so when we think of humility, think I need God. I need God for life. I will serve Him and do what I want. Or do what He wants. Sorry. Pride is do what I want. I need God. I will serve Him and do what He wants. One author said, Humility is like a slippery watermelon seed. Once you get it under your finger and think you have it, it slips away from your grasp. You ever pinch the watermelon seeds and shoot them? And that's the way pride is. You and I, this side of eternity, will never arrive on this. And when we think we've arrived on this, we're now struggling with pride and we've lost humility. Because humility says, always I need to work on this. The next word there is to be contrite in spirit contrite in spirit. And contrite is is another word that is just really fascinating. It means to be broken. To be broken or to be crippled sometimes it was used for. And and it's, it's one who is aware of the damage that sin causes. When we think of being contrite in spirit or in a spiritual sense, it's saying, I am broken because of sin. I am broken because of the damage it causes. And I have a personal inability to be righteous before God. And so when we think of being contrite in spirit, it's, think repentance. Think being so broken because of sin, which only happens when we understand it from God's perspective, when we understand how, how damaging it is to God's character, how defiant it is of His will, how hurtful it is to His love. Then we come in repentance. And that's being contrite in spirit being self-aware of our sin. And that takes intentionality. You're you're not going to be self-aware of your sin if you just go through life and say, oh, life is good. It takes sitting down in prayer and begging God, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my ways. See if there be any wicked way in me. And then as he reveals repentance and forgiveness for those things. And so humility and and being contrite in spirit, these are hand in hand. These all come under the category of coming under the authority of God. It's a proper reverence, a proper attitude. 
and one recognizes God's authority, the other allows Him to start to prune our lives and to say what's going on in our lives. Charles Spurgeon wrote, You will never glory in God till, first of all, God has killed your glorying in yourself. Let me read that again. You will never glory in God and think worship. And this whole section is, how do we have a right attitude of worship? You will never glory in God till, first of all, God has killed you glorying in yourself. What does God esteem? Humility. And being contrite in spirit. Killing self and glorying in God. Now the third category, sometimes we don't consider worship. And and one of my goals this morning is to really broaden our mind of worship. Worship is not just the four songs we sang this morning. Can we just get that out of the way? Worship is what we're doing right now, too. Worship is opening God's Word and and reading God's Word. Worship is serving Him. The, The people that are caring for your babies in nursery right now, so you can be in here, that's worship. Because they're bringing glory to God. If they're doing it with the right heart. Let me, let me, <laughs> that's what we're talking about today. But if the spirit is right and they're doing it to serve and that, that's worship. And, and so when we come and, and one of the things Joshua and I talk a lot about is we don't just want to say, well, we have the worship portion of our service and then the message. But we have a worship service, right? And, and all of it is bringing glory to God, humbling ourselves and coming before Him. And so Isaiah in his third, her th- third point here is, He who trembles at my word. It's part of a heart that God esteems, looks highly on, is proud of, is pleased with. He who trembles at my word. The word for trembles there is, is interesting because we sometimes can think of fear. But this is more an idea of awe and, and preparedness. You might say preparedness. It's this idea of being just urgently longing to please and taking it so seriously that it's important to us. It's the same word that was used of the Shunammite woman who was carefully preparing for Elisha to come. And, and she, was, she was trembling because she was taking care of every detail and, and worried about that. And Isaiah says, this is what God loves. For you to be so concerned about His Word, so in awe of coming to it that you've got to hear it. You've got to understand it. You've got to read it. This is His Word. This is His gift to us. One author called it a painstaking sensitivity to and awe of his word. I love that. Now, how do we do that? Uh, one of the ways we do that is by being intentional, by coming Sunday morning and, and not just saying, okay, I, I, hope, I hope worship gets me in the mood to hear God's word. Well, number one, you've used worship wrong because <laughs> you use it just for the singing. Number two, preparation starts long before Sunday morning. We're coming here to, to serve together, to worship together in the whole service. It means on, uh, as I'm coming or, or earlier saying, God, what do you want to teach me today? What do, you want to, what do you want me to learn? Lord, help your Holy Spirit to convict me of something today and encourage me of something today. And so be looking for God's Word to impact you. If we're not coming looking for God's Word to impact us, it's just words. It's just another book. But God's Word, when we approach it, whether it be Sunday morning or during the week as we open it up, always pray first. Always ask God to open it up because God's Word is always intended to impact us. Always. 
just we get in the way sometimes. Because we're worried about the checkbox that I've done my Bible reading today. Instead of actually humbly and being contrite and coming to God's Word. See, the key to coming to God's Word right and having it impact you is to have a humble attitude and contrite spirit. Because a humble attitude comes under God and says, I need your word. I don't have it all together. I'm dependent on you. And a contrite spirit says, I have sin in my life and your word will show me that and how to be forgiven and how to be cleansed. And I don't care if you've been a Christian two weeks or, or 50 years. God's word will impact you if we, if we let it, if we come to him. All of these things are ways we come under the creator's authority. I love what what, um, one author, a story was told of a minister in Scotland who was ministering during one of the great revivals of of Scotland. And he was talking about what what generated that or what was one of the marks of this revival. And he said one of the marks was a ravenous hunger for the truth of the gospel. A ravenous hunger. I love that. Not just a ravenous hunger for in and out, but for the truth of the gospel. And what if we loved God's word as much as we loved in and out? And I don't want to be trite, but, but, but really, do we cultivate that kind of love and desire for God's Word? He went on to say, and he's talking here just about the simple reading of God's Word. One of their traditions is they'd come together, and the first thing they'd do is someone would just get up and read God's Word. No, no sermon or anything. That would come later. And he says, it was a common thing as soon as the Bible was opened, after the preliminary services, and just as the reader began, for great meltings to come upon the hearers. I would love to do this in a Scottish accent, but they're not going to happen. <laughs> for great meltings to come upon the hearers. You get that? God's word melting our hearts. The deepest attention was paid to every word as the sacred verses were slowly and solemnly enunciated. Then the silent tear might be seen stealing down the rugged but expressive faces turning upon the reader. It was often a stirring sight to witness the multitudes assembling during the dark winter evenings to trace their progress as they came in all directions across moors and mountains by the blazing torches which they carried to light their way to the places of meeting. The word of the Lord was precious in those days and personal inconvenience was little thought of when the hungering soul sought to be satisfied. You want revival? Let's start with a commitment to tremble at God's Word. To love God's Word. And that takes work. It takes effort. It takes opening God's Word. So let's make sure we do that this week. These two verses are so key. So key to understanding Isaiah and understanding the heart of Isaiah. I wanted to spend some time on them. Adding in 3 through 6. We'll stop with these today. The second point is, what does God despise? Empty worship and surface religion. Empty worship and surface religion. 3 through 6 is a lot of things that we read and we're a little grossed out by some of them. We may not understand. But let's unpack it a little bit. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. 
He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. And it's interesting because each of these is a pair. And, I, and, and the pair is, is always, the first one is something that is an external aspect of their worship. Now, it's not for us. You, you, you didn't see Joshua slaughtering an ox this morning. You would have been a little freaked out. No one, Pastor Andrew didn't come up and sacrifice a lamb. Um, I didn't do a grain offering. And so, so we read this and it's, it's so different from our world that we miss it. But what he's saying is you've paired all your normal forms of worship with all these heinous things, with all these despicable things, killing a man, breaking a dog's neck, offering pig's blood. Remember their prohibition against, against pig and, and pig meat. That, that was horrible, especially to use it in worship or blessing an idol. And what God is saying here is even if you get the external stuff right, if your heart's not right, it's despicable to God. And this comes back to true worship versus false worship, sort of the theme of this whole chapter. It'd be like coming and singing wonderful worship songs and saying, praise God for His Word. And then going tomorrow to work and having a filthy mouth and pursuing our own desires and our own heart and not even thinking twice about sin that we view and see. God's saying the external isn't enough. He's not saying those things are bad. He's saying those things, when paired with worldliness, are false. And and you see at the end of 3, these have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. They're worshiping self. Their soul delights in abominations. And he says his response in verse 4, I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Oh, that God doesn't say that to us. That we don't stand before the throne and say, when I, and He says, when I spoke, you didn't listen. You did what was evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. Understand, He's speaking to a people that are doing all the right stuff, that are making all the right offerings, that on the outside, they look great. They're going to church 20 times a week. Uh, they're, they're, they're giving, they're singing, they're serving, but their heart isn't right. They didn't respond to God. They didn't listen to God. They gravitated to the things God hates because of a proud heart, a heart that was not contrite, a heart of stone. Because it says they did what they wanted. They chose their own way. What does God despise? Empty worship and surface religion. We'll pick up the rest of this chapter next week. I want to bow our heads for just a moment. We can't come to these verses and not ask it to change us and not ask the Holy Spirit to convict us. So I'd like to take a moment and pray through verse 2 and pray through those things that God delights in, that He esteems in us. A humble spirit, a contrite spirit, 
a people that tremble at His Word. And so let's just pray through those things with your heads bowed. I'd like to lead you through it. Take a moment and start by, by praising God for His creation. By praising God that He is Creator, that He is above all things. He is beyond our comprehension. Then ask God, Lord, reveal to me where I'm not humble. Reveal to me any area that I have not been intentionally dependent on you. That I have lived my life without thought of you. And ask him to change that. Then we move to a contrite spirit and ask God if there's any unconfessed sin in your life. Oh, when we come to worship, let's deal with the sin and let God clean it. Lord God, is there any unconfessed sin in my life? Help me to see sin as you see sin. Help me to be anguished and broken at any sin that I see. Lord, I repent of that. I confess that and ask for your forgiveness. And he forgives and he cleanses and he makes new. And then finally, pray that God would expand your love for Scripture. Lord, help me to love your word. Help me to look for ways it will change me. Help me to enjoy it being taught and read. Show me what gets in the way of your word. In Isaiah 57. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. Lord God, help that to be us as your church today. May we come under the authority of the creator of all things. And relish that you make us new and that you make us clean. In Jesus' name.